Hello and welcome to Panorama. My name is Sarah Robertson and I'm here with my co-host Dan Torres. Hey Sarah, happy New Year's. Happy New Year's to you too. And it is a really great and exciting New Year's because we have two lovely guests on the show today. They're journalists based in Amherst. There's Art Keen and Kitty Axelson Berry. They're the editors of the Amherst Indie, an independent online news publication based in Amherst, Massachusetts. Have you heard of the Amherst Indie, Dan? I have, of course. Who hasn't? course, because it's been around for five years now. I'm going to direct my first question to Art. So why did you found the Indy? <laughs> All right. Well, the, the idea to found the Indy came about when Amherst changed its form of government from the familiar quintessential town meeting to a town council form of government. So we went from 240 representatives to 13. And I believe we voted to change government back in 2018. And toward the end of that year, we got a bunch of folks, maybe 20, who had opposed the change in government. And we got together in my living room and we said, you know, it's going to be a real drop in civic participation. And it's going to be really hard to keep tabs on what's going on. And we need to make sure that folks in the community know what's going on. So we should do something about that. And we decided that what we would do is we would go to town council meetings and write down what happened and throw those notes up on the internet. And, you know, that would help promote transparency. And we thought, how hard could that be? Well, turned out it was hard. (laughs) But that's how the Indy got started. And I think we had our first meetings in November or December And by March of the next year, town council had been business for a couple of months. And I think we published our first issue, 10 articles, on March 30th of 2019. And started out pretty much go to meetings, write down what happened, throw that up on the internet. And then we just kept expanding into events and stuff like that. When, when you were having those meetings with people and you, you said there was people who didn't like the, the change in government, did you just not like the, the change to the new government or did you want the old government or were you in, interested in doing a change to a different form of government than, than Amherst had previously? We had all been fans of the former form of government, very participatory, lots of people involved. 240 elected representatives instead of 13. You know the cliche about Amherst, you know, it's the town where only the H is silent. Lots of people concerned, informed, civically literate, and we worried that with this diminution of government that that civic participation would diminish, which in fact it did very rapidly. And so that was our concern. You know, our aim was to keep people involved, to keep people engaged, to keep people informed, and to help keep the government accountable to the public. But it's interesting because we came to a decision at the beginning. Since we had a new town government, new form of government, we would work with that. And we wouldn't be oppositional, and we would really try to make it the best possible seen, you know, that we could. Um, So we continued to (laughs) really try to be supportive, put a positive spin on things for years. And then, yeah. But from the get-go, the government saw us as oppositional. 
Exactly. So there was a real resistance to transparency, to sharing. I mean, in the first year, we had to file public records requests just to get minutes. Right. And, and they was, would say, like, oh, well, just give us a chance. Give us a chance to um, get settled in. And so we were like, okay, fine. But it didn't take long for us to realize, for our fears to be realized, that this wasn't a government where people were going to be open and share. And, I mean, we were told over and over again, you know, your job is to elect the government and then to get out of our way. Mm -hmm. And that wasn't consistent with our, you know, our sense of what democracy is like. And so. what kind of issues were you covering that you were meeting resistance from the Newtown government? In the beginning, it was kind of quotidian. It was like, you're going over some proposal at a council meeting. And we would say, can we see a copy of that proposal? And they would go, no. Oh. Or, you know, we'd say, I missed the meeting on such and such. Can we get the minutes? And they would say, no, we don't have time for that. Uh, file a public records request. So, you know, over the last four and a half years, we filed a lot of public records requests because that's one thing that hasn't changed is that it, we have a government that's not inclined to share with the public and to resent when the public has questions or concerns. So we feel that's part of our job is to bring stuff out into the open, not in an oppositional way, although it's kind of becoming that way, but to promote civic knowledge so people know what their government is doing and whether their interests are being represented or not. And I mean, my sense is that people doing the work in government don't want folks messing with what they're doing. And, and, you know, the more transparent you are, the more likely people are going to stick their fingers in it. I mean, we live in one of the worst states for government transparency in public records. We have some of the most restrictive public records laws in this country. I, I, I have no idea because yeah. we've yeah. had pretty good luck, but we filed a bunch of public records requests and often we discover things that are hair-raising, you know. Mm. So I would love to hear from our, uh, Sarah, if you don't mind, because I, I am an Amherst resident. So some people maybe who supported the government change would have argued that the previous government form, right, that you described as open and transparent was too inefficient. It was too ineffective. That, I'm sure you heard that a million times. And since I can't go back in time and talk to you five years ago, tell me what your rebuttal was that, uh, to, to that argument. I didn't think there was much substance to that argument as... Today, I don't think there is much substance. I, I mean, I think empirically, uh, the experience of the new government has been borne out that there is less civic participation, there's less civic awareness, there's less likelihood that people will get engaged on specific issues, and I think that was the intent all along. And, uh, you know, I find I, I write to my reps all the time, and I find they're mostly indifferent to my concerns. I write scathing editorials, mm -hmm. and I find that, you know, there's very little response to that, that folks are kind of set in their ways but and set in their agendas. But, you know, with town meeting, I mean, the great thing about town meeting is you'd go to town meeting, and there would be a dozen people in the room who had some kind of incredible expertise on whatever issue was in front. So, you know, they'd be talking about, I don't know, redoing water lines. And they'd come with this proposal and then somebody who was a civil engineer or a professor of civil engineering would stand up and say, you know, I think there are some things you haven't considered. And that happened time and time again because Amherst is filled with people who have 
experience and expertise. And the change in government kind of got all that off the table. And now you have a small room with 13 people that's kind of an echo chamber because they mostly bring a similar political perspective. So there was a lot more diversity in town meeting. And, you know, that brought multiple perspectives on the challenges that face the town. And that was more amenable to a democratic process. And we said that then, and we heard the arguments that, that won the day, but they were wrong, I think. So the tagline of the Amherst Indy is critical, progressive, and independent. Do you feel that kind of perspective was lacking? Because there, there is a local newspaper that covers Amherst. It's the Daily Hampshire Gazette. But it seems like you guys feel that with this change of government, the Daily Hampshire Gazette wouldn't be doing as much coverage as you'd like to see, or maybe not the kind of coverage. So, Kitty, could you tell us what you feel like was lacking in the local media sphere? I don't particularly find that the local media is critical. I don't particularly find that it's independent. Mm -hmm. And I don't particularly find that it's progressive. So there is some pretty good reporting of just the facts, ma'am. But the slant of it is quite different from how I see politics in the area Mm -hmm. and politics in Amherst in particular. So I feel that they really toe the line on a lot of issues that we care about, such as the Jones Library development, housing for people who are financially insecure, education, putting money towards education, and underprivileged people in general. And I think maybe it helps the uh, Gazette have people like us to present a different point of view. Yeah, that's such an important part of a media ecosystem. You can't have one megaphone. You have to have discussions and conversations. And that's one of the things that I think the Amherst Indy actually does really well is you guys have a lot of contributors and a lot of letters to the editor too. How do you, how do you think that including letters to the editor and so many different writers helps the Indy? I don't know if it helps the Indy, but it certainly <laughs> helps the town. If town meeting was the town square and if the philosophy of the current government is participation in the town square should be restricted then the Indy's kind of a, a, an antidote to that, right? Because there's a space where people can make their opinions known. And while we are unapologet- we say we're unapologetically progressive, we also don't censor opinions that are not progressive. And so there's space, and there's pretty much infinite space. I mean, we try to limit our weekly editions to 36 articles, no more. 24 is ideal. But, you know, if we are during the crisis with LGBTQ discrimination against LGBTQ kids at the middle school, you know, the letters and the editorials were just pouring in and we don't have a space restriction, you know, we're like the Gazette does. And so we can print as many letters as folks who have something to say. And so I, I, I think that that's an asset to the community, right? There's a public square and your voice can be heard. And I think that's a good thing. The Indy is all volunteer. Uh, do you guys even have a budget? And we have no business plan. We we have expenses. Right now, a couple of the founders are covering all those expenses out of pocket. Wow. It's not onerous. You know, we have to pay for website hosting. We have to pay for stock photos and stuff like that. But it's manageable. And in in having this model, we're not beholden to anybody. So we're not beholden to advertisers. Every year around Christmas, we get offers of donations, and we turn them down. 
even though, you know, they, they come from beloved allies, because then we're not beholden. And we can say we take money from nobody, and our job is to get the news out. And I don't, I don't know that that's a replicable model. I don't know if it's a good model, <laughs> but that's what we're doing. And Art, do you have to be an Amherst resident in order to submit a letter to the Amherst NDE? No, I mean, we'll take, and now, you know, now that we, we tweak something with Google search, so we're getting more readers who are not local. Do you have plans to expand beyond Amherst? No. No. No, okay. our focus, back to our origin, Amherst government, civic participation, mm-hmm. civic literacy. So occasionally we'll run a national story or a statewide story because it's of interest or of relevance to stuff that we're dealing with in Amherst. We used to have access, free access to stuff out of the Guardian, mm. so which we've lost. But we, we I, the start of the Ukraine war, we ran a couple of editorials on that war. We've run a couple of editorials about Palestine. Our readers tell us that they don't care about that. Not that they don't care about that, but that they're not looking to the indie for that. They can go to the New York Times if they want to read about Palestine. Uh, nonetheless, every, every once in a while I run across something that has fair access and I'll throw it in and people don't have to read it if they don't want. Hmm. Yeah. And the Indy has covered, like you said, stories of some statewide significance, perhaps the bullying of trans students at Amherst Middle School. And I would like to ask you guys a bit about that at the other side of this break. We are speaking with Art Keen and Kitty axelson Barry. They're the editors of the Amherst Indie, an independent online news publication based in Amherst, Massachusetts. And we'll be right back. Hello and welcome back to Panorama, where we are speaking with Art Keen and Kitty axelson Barry of the Amherst Indie. It's an online independent news publication focused on Amherst and it's all volunteer run. And I wanted to ask you guys about some of the big news that has come out of Amherst this year. Um, in particular, the story broke by the student newspaper, the Amherst Graphic, that there were administrators that were allegedly bullying trans students. And it actually led to the resignation of a superintendent and school committee members. And it was covered by all these publications. You guys have been covering it pretty closely. Can you tell me how you went about doing that? Well, first off, we tried to break the story and we couldn't. We got wind of the stuff that was going on and we reached out to folks we knew in the school, teachers, staff. Nobody would talk to us. The closest we came talking to some people who were really close, they would say, I can't talk to you, but there's a story there. Mm. And it just didn't go anywhere. But the graphic had been working on it as well. And they did get people to talk to them, and they broke the story. And it's it's mind-boggling to think what would have happened if they hadn't, because the, the school system was doing a really good job of suppressing the story and people who had stuff to say. So... We, we have great admiration for the folks at The Graphic who have won a bunch of, well, they've won two so far, national awards for their work and have been nominated for a Pulitzer, I guess. Wow. And pretty amazing reporting. So we read that story and Art was like, let's reprint it. And so we did. And I, th- I really think that that story would never have gotten the legs that it got if we hadn't reprinted it. 
because at that point, um, people in the, in the school administration were saying, we don't know anything, there have no, been no complaints, or that's just, that's just a student newspaper, it's unimportant, How, you can't trust what it says. And it was outrageous. Um, so once we printed it, um, yeah, people started talking. And then the Boston Globe picked up on, on it and other newspapers, too. And we were just so proud of the graphic. And they had done that story a few years ago about the reupholstering of auditorium seats by prisoners um, instead of by local companies. Mm-hmm. And the, that was the other story that the graphic did. They have a great advisor. Yeah. So And then once the story came out, there was just a flood of op-eds and letters. And, uh, you know, we, we, we continue to press. It's very hard to get information, as, as it remains today. I mean, we're still asking questions of the central administration about bullying policy, and we can't get answers. You know, mm-hmm. simple questions that they should be able to answer, like how many bullying reports have been filed since the start of the semester? Or have you informed your faculty of the school's pronoun policy because pronouns were a big issue in the bullying of these trans kids and we can't get answers. Right. And And then the Title IX um, investigation, which was going on, it had been going on when the graphic came out with this article and the administration was denying that they knew anything about it. They were saying, oh, there have been no complaints. And at that point, the Title IX investigation was, was happening and they found that the allegations were accurate. And we should say that uh, the, the Title IX report and the non-Title IX reports, I think there were five reports in total, uh, were not to be shared with the public. That was the decision of the central administration and the Gazette went to the Secretary of State and filed a protest and got those reports released. And my reading of the reports is that the stuff is more shocking than any of the stories that were circulating before the reports were. It, it was much worse than we imagined or that anybody was saying. Yeah, and this is such an important story and also such a beautiful example of the importance of a media ecosystem. Like the the student newspaper got access to a story that no one else could have reported. And then you guys helped amplify it. And then the Gazette comes in and helps with the public records request. Like this is a, I don't know, I just think it's a great example of community working together. And like you guys being an all-volunteer publication, I want to ask what it's like having like the responsibility of covering a story right like you get lots of letters to the editor you need to fact check those letters to the editor so like what kind of steps do you take to make sure you're doing this kind of coverage responsibly even as a flood of information comes out kitty and i probably have different takes on this because she's Mm -hmm. a professional journalist yes and i'm not (laughs) and we are all volunteers we have some other professional writers who write for us but mostly not And covering a story depends on who's willing to go out and cover the story because everybody's got other stuff that they're doing. So the first challenge is, can anybody do it? Can anybody go out and get the story? But then getting folks to talk to us is a real challenge too because when the Gazette poses a question, they get an answer. And when we pose a question, we are frequently ignored. And so covering the story is a challenge. Art, this is Dan. I would like to hear from you. I mean, you just said Kitty was a, as a jur- as a journalist, an editor, but who are you? How did you? Get, I mean, going back to that, I mean, you. I can see that you, you used to work at UMass. Uh, what did you teach? Tell us a little bit about your story. 
I'm an anthropologist. I originally trained as an archaeologist. Archaeologist? What was your specialty? My specialty was prehistoric hunters and gatherers of the Great Lakes. But about 10 years in, I decided that there was much more potential in working with living people than dead people. <laughs> uh, as an archaeologist, I, I was interested in writing alternative narratives about the past. So narratives that didn't necessarily reaffirm the inevitability of neoliberal capitalism, but challenge the route by which we got to where we are now. And that seemed like a really good idea when I was in training. And in reality, it just didn't do much to change the way people thought about the contemporary world. So I changed my focus to working with living people. I spent uh, over a decade working with collective farms in Israel thinking about ways that we could create alternatives to capitalism. And then I got into a field called community service learning, where you combine academic study with work with community organizations, and in our case, with progressive community organizations. And uh, I started teaching community organizing as well at UMass. And I, I founded two civic leadership programs with this strong community engagement component. And that's sort of what I did. But I was right. sports editor of my high school newspaper. <laughs> so that was my last journalism experience. <laughs> and my interest in the indie was not to become a journalist or a write, writing on deadline. Oh, my God. <laughs> uh, that, that, that was new to me. And a lot of our volunteers are retired academics. And writing on deadline is new to them. <laughs> But I was interested in the civic piece, in, in the building community piece, in finding our common ground piece. And that's what, what got me involved. And now I find myself writing multiple articles a week. And I'm, mm. I'm kind of amazed that I do this. <laughs> yeah. you know? And then at the same time, we have Kitty here, who is no stranger to deadlines. You were an editor of the Valley Advocate and the Springfield Advocate. Do you want to tell us a bit about um, your experience as a journalist and what brought you to the Indy? Yeah, sure. I was kind of a back-to-the-land hippie for many years, and then I just fell into covering the news for the Greenfield Recorder and the Valley Advocate and found that the Valley Advocate was closer to my heart. Was that back when it was an independent magazine? Oh my gosh, yes. It was 1985. It was quite a while, <laughs> quite a while ago. I was there and became the editor of both editions, the uh, Valley and the Springfield edition. Did that for 10 years as the editor, and then I opened up a small business that involved writing and editing. What's the small business that involves writing and editing? It's still ongoing. I sold it a few years ago to wonderful local people, and it's called Modern Memoirs, a writing, editing, and publishing service specializing in memoirs and personal histories. Cool. Well, so it sounds like you've been steeped in local stories for quite some time. For then. a really long time. And <laughs> so I really welcome this opportunity to be part of the indie because for me, I, I don't really like to write articles. I, I prefer to do interviews with people and write up the interviews um, because that was my training <laughs> of myself for mm -hmm. all those years that I had the um, personal history business. But it's like very discreet pieces of work. You know, it's hard to get volunteers to undertake big projects. But if you ask them to do like edit this one article, edit this one article, edit this one article. It's, it's, it's really very fulfilling 
And I feel like we're doing a great job of moving things forward in the town of Amherst as much as we can and keeping transparency and accountability. Thank you for that, Kitty, and thank you, Art. And we are talking about the Amherst Indie, which is an independent online news magazine based in Amherst. And we'll be right back with more after this break. Hello, and welcome back to Panorama, where we are talking with the editors of the Amherst Indie, Art Keen and Kitty Axelson Berry, about the importance of local media and exposing things that haven't made it into traditional news outlets, one of which is some of the facts around the new library renovation project. The Jones Library just had an additional $10 million of borrowing approved, yep. and there's a lot of debate around that. So what has the Amherst Indie been reporting on in regards to that? Oh, my God. So much stuff on the library uh, that wouldn't have seen the light of day, thanks to our investigative reporter, Jeff Lee, who has been digging up all kinds of stuff that you won't read anyplace else. And so let me see if I can give you three points that uh, of the many articles. Jeff's got an article every week about the library in the Indy, so you can go and go through his archive. But in, in 2015, there was a state library official named Anna Pop who wrote a report saying that the library space, as it existed, could be renovated at fairly low cost to meet all of the needs of the Amherst community. Now, the position of the people who are promoting this massive, expensive expansion have argued that the library can't be renovated at a reasonable cost, the repairs that need to be made can't be made at a reasonable cost, and that the current space is insufficient. Well, we've got this report from 2015 from a state official that says just the opposite. The trustees buried that report. So town government didn't see the report. The voters didn't see that report. Nobody saw that report until Jeff dug it up in early 2022, maybe. So just one example. No really important information, right? We have to build 61,000 square foot library. You know, none of the current infrastructure is repairable, all wrong. Mm. So that's one example. Uh, another example is they keep saying the library is going to cost 36 point whatever million dollars. I think it's, I think it's 46 million. Well, now, now yeah. the estimate is 46 million and they borrowed another $10 million to do that. But the library isn't going to cost 46 million. It's going to cost 70 or $80 million. And we've been trying to get our hands on the cost estimates. They haven't been sharing them with the public. Jeff filed a public records request, got the cost estimate. It seems uh, very fantastical to us. But among the things we discovered is that they took out like a million dollars of furniture and $860,000 of landscaping. And so they've taken a lot of stuff out of the cost estimate that they didn't want to share with the public. And at a trustees meeting, somebody asked, well, what are we going to do with a library without furniture? And they said, oh, we'll come back and ask the town for that money later. And so there's those kinds of shenanigans going on. Art, quick, quickly, you said something very interesting. You said it would cost at the end 70, 80 million. What is that based off of? That's my guess. Oh, that's your guess. Okay. That's is my that guess. just cost, but, but, cost rise? But, well, if you, if you look at, so there, there are 11 other projects like ours in the state that have all given their money back. We have a grant from the Mass Board of Library Commissioners. 11 other libraries have given the money back because of cost escalations and supply chain problems. And the costs have gone up so much that these municipalities have decided they just can't decide to move forward. And uh, on many of these, 
the, the cost escalation is over 100% of the original estimate. In fact, we just did a small renovation on our beautiful North Amherst Library, and I think that one was finally completed at 400% over the original cost estimate. So all of their estimates that they're working on are really, they look to us to be lowballs. And when we, we ask and we say, well, how are you reconciling this with the escalation of costs and other things? They say, well, you know, costs are going to start to go down. And if costs start to go down, the library won't cost $70 million. It might even cost $46 million. But that's not the way other projects around the state. I mean, right now we're repairing our water plant in Amherst. And I can't remember the percentage. I think it's... Uh, 150, 200% over the original cost estimate. It's not going to be built for $46 million. You know, one of the things the India has done is we've challenged their cost estimates. They've started withhold cost estimates from the public. Then we go and get the documents and we challenge them. So, mm -hmm. you know, those are things that we can do to keep things in the public eye. And then the third thing I'll mention real quickly is they keep saying that the town's commitment is fixed at our original authorization. We authorized $36 million from the town. They said the library will come up with all the extra money, except that doesn't include interest on additional loans. So we just borrowed an additional $10 million. The town's paying that. The town is responsible for all additional interest. And so our capital budget is kind of like a, a finite pie, right? If we're taking a bigger slice of that pie out to cover growing library debt, then we have $46 million of road repairs that are harder to meet. We lack a senior center like our neighboring towns have. We have a fire department and a DPW where the working conditions are toxic. And if anybody filed a complaint with OSHA, they'd probably come in and shut these buildings down. But all of those things get pushed farther away into the future as we borrow more and more money for this library. And so that's a conversation that we want people to be having. And so that comes up in the Indy. Yeah. And to pivot to another topic that I've really only seen covered in the Indy, and which also comes with a pretty big price tag, is the suggestion to install an artificial turf field at Amherst High School. Um, Kitty, could you tell us a bit about that? Well, it's not just a suggestion. The way the proposal is worded is that it has to be artificial turf, and that natural turf would not be considered, will not even be considered. So it's a crazy, crazy thing, and I, I just find it hard to believe that the progressive, supposedly, town of Amherst would be going for artificial turf when it's terribly poisonous to people and the environment. Yeah. What, what's poisonous about it? I'll let Art talk about that. <laughs> okay, but I, I want to tell you something about myself first. Okay. Two things. One, I coached at the high school for 17 years. I coached girls cross country, and so intimately connected to the sports community there. And until maybe two years ago, I was a vocal advocate in support of artificial turf. Mm. And then I took a deep dive into the medical literature and the environmental literature. Uh, I did with my wife, who's a physician. You read that stuff, and it's just unconscionable. You know, the PFAS content, PFAS, uh, a family of very toxic, very carcinogenic, very environmentally destructive chemicals, all artificial turf contains it. All artificial turf sh sheds it into the environment. So the environmental hazards and the health hazards are just so massively well-documented. 
I mean, this, and are just beginning to come to light in a lot of places. There's so much we don't know, but what we do know is terrible. Mm-hmm. And we know because other communities have had their water tables contaminated. They, I mean, it's just there, there are so many reasons not to do this. Yeah. And so we've been covering it with great detail. And you're not going to find that elsewhere. So Amherst uh, schools, I've been just reading, are facing a severe budget crisis. And currently, it looks like at least it's going to be somewhere between 1.5 to 2 million, but at least the records I've seen is $2 million budget deficit uh, for the schools, which will be a structural deficit, meaning it'll be year over year over year. And I'm just wondering, in your coverage of schools in Amherst, since you talked about it earlier, what what do you suspect is going to happen? I don't have a clue. I mean, you know, they're not exactly transparent. On the budget, you mean? On, On anything. Anything. And, you know, and back to the turf, on the one hand, they're talking about, uh, you know. It's a couple million dollar projects. That's why I no, brought no, it up. No, it's going to be five, six. Their, their estimate, five, six. Their estimate is three years old. The costs have gone up. Their estimate is for artificial turf with crumb rubber, which is the, the ground up tires, but they want to put in safer infill. The, the, the project is absolutely unaffordable. We've run two or three we call them issues and analysis pieces where we allow our writer to take a really deep technical dive into a subject, something that you couldn't get in a news story or a typical feature. And so we've run several, well, not several, two or three of these financial analyses on turf, not viable. Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I just don't know. And, you know, they've already, they've, uh, I don't know if they resolved this, like they, they fired the paras who work in the library you know, who, who get paid all of $18 and change an hour. So we don't have paraprofessionals in the library anymore. And I mean, I don't know, but I think having an open discussion with the public. Oh. And, and that's the benefit of having an online publication because you have the space for this and you don't need to worry about putting it in a newspaper. So I want to ask you about maintaining a publication like this and where you'd like to see it go in the future right after this. Hello and welcome back to Panorama, where we are talking to the editors of the Amherst Indie, Art Keen and Kitty Axelson-Berry, generally just about the importance of local news institutions. I feel like the Amherst Indie is kind of part of this slow shift of communities kind of realizing that they don't have the, like you said earlier, Art, the public square to have these conversations anymore. So I'm, I'm wondering if you guys also see this shift in consciousness of like, we need to take that back and increase civic participation, or um, if the Indy's part of that movement. Well, going back to the days of the Valley Advocate and Springfield Advocate being an alternative investigative news and arts weekly, I would love to see the Indy and other places, other localities have newspapers where you really could take on a lot of big issues and do a lot of first-person investigative reporting. I would love for the indie to be able to do more of that, to have come up with the article that the graphic came up with, but there's a lot more than that one article that needs to be written about. I I think that's one of our challenges, you know? I mean, there's so much in Amherst that merits investigation, and we really only have two people who have the skills to do investigative reporting, and it's not like you can take a retired art history professor who knows how to do research, but not necessarily investigative journalism, and say, now I want you to go out and investigate this, you know, emerging scandal. Mm -hmm. And it's hard enough to get somebody to go to a town council meeting and write down what happened, 
and write a summary, but to get somebody to do investigative stuff, that, that requires some training, that requires... The free time. <laughs> in, indeed. And then, you know, you kind of have to cultivate contacts in the community and all that, because if people aren't going to talk to you, as we discovered with the LGBTQ crisis, uh, people wouldn't talk to us. But the, the, the students at the graphic had the contacts. So, I, you know, I think that's a real challenge. I think looking ahead... I'm grateful that we're able to do this because in so many communities, people realize the need, but they can't mobilize the folks to do what needs to be done. And we're hearing more and more about news deserts. You know, I mean, there's so much out there, so many folks, people who write about democracy talking about how local newspapers were the building blocks of democracy. And now there are vast swaths of the country. You can go online and find that map of where there's no local news. And, yeah. and, and we're relatively lucky here. Like, we have the Indie, and we have the Shoestring, and we have the Gazette still. Mm-hmm. And the Reminder. And, and the Reminder. And, yeah. And I've been talking to some people uh, in Somerville and Marblehead who have been, who have been um, very interested in starting a local news source resource, but don't quite know how to go about doing it. So I think that if people wanted to get in touch with us, about our experience starting the Indy and, and, and keeping it going, we would be happy to talk to them. And maybe there could even be a national organization of news resources, um, independent news resources who would support each other. Yeah. What, what slice of advice would you give anyone who's interested in starting something like the Indy? Don't make it part of the finance sector. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 th- I think there's a, I don't know, a conundrum. Uh, because, you know, we've adapted this no business plan model, and we've done this as a volunteer effort as, you know, with the aim of building community, building civic connections, building civic literacy. But but journalism's a profession, you know, and professionals ought to be paid uh, a fair salary. And so there's a danger in saying, well, we'll save democracy by all volunteering to get the news out. And there's a real positive effect to that, right? The change in government was meant to kill civic participation, and we're building it back. And that's a good thing. But somebody out there, many people out there, it needs to be a collective effort, need to save journalism because it's really an essential profession to sustaining democracy. And I'm not sure that we have the antidote or the solution or anything for that. You know, we're, we're trying to muddle through and make sure folks know what's going on around them and hopefully get them engaged. Right, because the volunteers are doing the best they can, but the perspectives that really matter are probably the people who really don't have the time in their day to do these kind of deep dives. Like mm-hmm. if you are worrying about people maybe struggling the most in your community. There was one question I also wanted to pose to you, Kitty. Um, as compared to editing the Valley Advocate, how does like being an online publication maybe help you be more nimble in covering the news? Are there, are there benefits to being online versus being in print? Yeah, sure. If things slip through, um, they can be changed. <laughs> it's total, That's a, a totally different thing. And Art knows I forget about that sometimes. I'm like, no, we have to change it now. We can't go back later and change things mm-hmm. because that's just my experience. Once it's in print, it's in print. It's there, and I. You say, well, look at look it over after we put it up, put it on the internet. It's like I'm not going to look over anything once it's already out there. Maybe. This relates to the fact checking thing because if people can participate in the uh, news resource, 
that's great because they, they're our fact checkers, the ones who are deeply involved already. I had really mixed feelings when the Title IX investigation about transphobia at the high school came out mm -hmm. because on the one hand, I really didn't want it to be true. Mm. I, I really didn't want it to be true. On the other hand, I didn't want to be wrong. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it causes you agony, <laughs> like as an editor. Yeah. Yeah. And initially it didn't want to, it wasn't going to be published, right? Because of the personnel laws they wanted to protect. So it wasn't actually going to be published until, as you said, the Daily Hampshire Gazette was willing to go to the state and demand its, its release. Right, right. And, and at that same time, a lot of the members of the school, some, some members of the school committee and the administration were saying, we're the victims, we resign because you've maligned us and everything is untrue. It was true. All right, so um, last question before we wrap up. Um, where do you guys see the indie going in your next 5, 10, 15 years? What we'll, are be your, what are your... we'll be dead. We'll be dead. We did not expect to be doing this five years in, and as Kitty pointed out today, we, we really don't have a transition plan. Hmm. So that's something we ought to be talking about. It's a hard question because now we've kind of made the case for the need that, you know, there's a lot more we could say about the need we're serving inside Amherst, about the knowledge that people wouldn't have if we weren't doing this. So it's not like we can just step away but my kids have said I've failed retirement. You know, <laughs> they think I should be doing retirement things. So I, I don't know if that's in the cards. Mm. I, I don't know what happens next. We're, we're sort of doing this one issue at a time. Retirement is overrated. Oh, okay. Well, it also feels really good to be doing a good job of educating people mm -hmm. and keeping people on their toes as well. It feels great, and that's a good retirement thing to do. Mm -hmm. Or I could say two more editors, 20 more writers, mm -hmm. and we could double our impact. So maybe, maybe that's the answer. Where are we going to be a year from now? More writers, more editors, more coverage. Well, I sure hope so. All right, and if people want to learn more about the Amherst Indie, read your stories, or contact you, how can they do that? They can write to us at Amherst Indie. I-N-D-Y at gmail.com, or they can find the paper online at amherstindy.org. Thank you for listening. We have been speaking with Kitty Axelson-Berry and Art Keen. They are the editors of the Amherst Indy, the independent online news magazine based in Amherst, now five years and running. Thank you for joining us on Panorama. My name's Sarah Robertson. I'm Dan Torres. Thank you for listening. <laughs>